Welcome everyone to this week's episode of In the Know with Cat Bobino. Today my extra special guest is coming all the way from Jacksonville, Florida. Please meet Kate Chorba and she is a field scientist. Hello Kate. Hello Kat. How are you doing today? I'm doing very well and yourself? I'm doing great. So why don't you tell us what you do as a field scientist? So I work for an environmental consulting firm and basically I go around the country uh, and inspect sites for environmental degradation uh, and look into remediation, possible remediation and make sure there's no problems. And then I come back and I write a report about those sites that we give to our clients. Okay, so what type of clients are they? Are they like big businesses, small business, or what kind of people do you guys it, consult? It varies. Um, typically these kind of studies, they're called uh, environmental site assessments and they're required by financial institutions anytime there's a transaction or a transfer of title for properties. So we have a big project that we work for several um, companies that own cell phone towers. That's our bread and butter. But we also do, you know, any kind of real estate transactions that are commercial. Okay. Okay. So when it comes to being a field scientist, what got you into that? What got you into this particular field? Uh, I majored in physics as um, my undergraduate degree. And what they don't tell you when you major in physics as an undergrad is that you can't really do much um, with that degree with just a bachelor's. Usually right. you have to go on to get a master's or a PhD, and I didn't necessarily realize that. So after I graduated college, um, I was looking for jobs, and I worked for uh, Kaplan for a while teaching at their MCAT course. Okay. And um, I came across the this ad for a job that was basically like, you know, do you want to travel 90% of the time? Do you have a, a science degree? And I was like, that sounds great. Um, and so I, I, I came into this field that way, kind of, kind of by accident. <laughs> Okay. And I mean, you don't have to answer this question because I don't want your job to particularly see this, but how do you feel about traveling 90% of the time? Well, I, I actually love it um, a lot. It, the travel has slowed down as I've advanced in my career. Um, I, I, now I travel more like 50% of the time because now that I, I've been, you know, changed my skill level, I can write the reports for the sites that I visit. So when I first started, I would go out to the sites get all the information, bring it back, and then give it to a senior level scientist to write those reports. And now I'm doing more of that on my own. And as my career progresses, I should travel less and less, which is, you know, it's, it's got its ups and downs. Right. I'm sure the travel part is amazing. And you said it's throughout the nation, right? Yeah. So I've been to, um, in my first year, actually, working at my firm, I had been to all our, every state but Hawaii. Wow. And I've also been to uh, Canada and Puerto Rico. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. So do you have a favorite place? Uh, you know, I had a feeling you were going to ask me In terms of, like, sheer physical beauty, uh, Alaska is probably the best place that I've been. I mean, it, it really is, is um, it takes your breath away because every direction you look in is like looking at a postcard. And it's, it's very rare uh, nowadays to see anywhere in nature that you don't see something man-made. So for instance, even if you're out in the middle of like, you know, nowhere, Idaho, you're gonna look out and you're gonna see electrical wires or telephone wires or road. And in Alaska, you can still see these vistas that are kind of uninterrupted by any kind of human development. And that's really cool. 
Um, another place that I really think is, is magical and I, I think everyone should go to is, is right in your neck of the woods and that's Northern California. Mm -hmm. um, all those redwood forests are just like, it's straight out of Middle Earth. It's, there's something very enchanting about and magical about those places and driving through them. Yes, absolutely. I love, well, I do. I love Northern California and the redwoods. And what I particularly like about California is that it you have everything. You can go to the mountains, you can go to the beach, you can go to the redwoods. So it's all there. But then that's me tuning my state's own horn. I've never been to Alaska. I hear it's beautiful. However, the winter, I don't know if I can do that. The first time I went to Alaska, it was in the winter. Um, and there was about, I think it was five hours of sunlight. Because I went to a Anchorage. Um, and then the Kenai Peninsula. And it was... Uh, it wasn't as cold as I thought it would be, but it was eerie to not have the sunrise until like 10:30 in the morning, and then it never really got above a certain angle above the um, the horizon, which was just it, it was strange. Mm -hmm. uh, but actually, Maine is very similar. I mean, it has more hours of light, but again, in the winter in Maine, that the sun doesn't rise very far up either. And as somebody who's from Florida and is used to you know sunshine all year round, it was a little eerie. Yeah, I can see that. I can see that being very eerie. I'm imagining it. And I just, I don't know. I couldn't do it. I would only reason I'd go to Alaska in the winter is for the Northern Lights, and I feel like I can see that in one weekend and come back. <laughs> I don't think I could do it like an extended stay. But I understand Alaska is really beautiful. And like, where is your least favorite place that you've been? Uh, I. I'm not a huge fan of traveling in the Southeast only because, you know, I live in Florida. And so it, it's not really like anything special or different, you know? Um, so when I get local sites or I have to travel within Florida or, you know, Mississippi, Alabama, Georgia, it feels like, you know, this is stuff that I could take my own, you know, trip to and it doesn't really feel like exotic or different or new. So that that's, you know, my least favorite part of it. Okay. That makes perfect sense. I mean, I don't know. Yeah, I get that. I don't necessarily like driving throughout all of California. I'm like, okay, it's kind of the same. So <laughs> we don't have to do all that. So let's go back to you and going to undergrad. What undergrad did you go to and why did you choose physics? Uh, I went to the University of North Florida, which is the university here in Jacksonville. Um, I, I went to... to to college later on in my late 20s. Um, I had gone to college when I was 18, but I didn't know what I wanted to do and it, it didn't really work out for me. So I, I dropped out um, and I did several different jobs. And what I found was I really wasn't satisfied sitting at a desk all the time. And so when I wanted to go back to school, I knew I wanted to do one of the, the hard sciences, you know, chemistry, biology, physics. Mm -hmm. And to me, um, Biology was almost like learning a foreign language. It was very verbal. There was lots of like words and, and definitions and and that just wasn't really my thing. And chemistry, you couldn't see anything that was going on. It was all this like kind of invisible process. But physics, <laughs> like, you know, you you push a block and it moves, or you, you like, you know, you ram two cars together and you can see what happens. And that's why it appealed to me. And plus I liked the challenge of of the math and all the stuff that came with it. Okay, so as a biologist, you know, I feel, 
it does, doesn't hurt my feelings. But yeah, there's a lot of memorization, I think, when it comes to biology. And then, especially if you start to specify, you know, microbiology, you got to learn all the words and all the processes with that. And same thing with animal biology. But then, I guess I feel like chemistry... I kind of, I guess I feel you on chemistry. Like you can make something explode, but then that's about it. Everything else is just molecules and <laughs> molecular weight. And that I didn't get that very well. But I didn't get physics either. Physics was, <laughs> I think it was the math part that kind of went over my head. Right. I, so did that you? That gets ha- a lot of people. Yeah, I think so. Did you have someone who was like helping you decide that physics was going to be the best bet? Or do you say it was your experience before going to college and figuring out that physics was your best bet? I think um, I didn't really have anyone pushing me in that direction. What what it was is that uh, that period of time between when I dropped out of college when I was younger and when I went to college in my early 20s or my late 20s, I had a series of jobs doing the things that I thought that I would like to do, but none of those jobs were challenging to me. And so when I went back to school, I thought, you know, I don't have, I never thought I had a natural aptitude for the sciences and I wanted a challenge. And it seemed like physics was pretty challenging and and that's kind of what I wanted. Um, It was difficult in the sense that I was one of maybe three women in the physics program. Mm. Um, And it was always difficult because in the beginning of uh, each semester, you know, when there would be lab groups and stuff, like nobody ever wanted to be in the group with a female. Oh so my it, gosh. It, made the, it made the three of us, like the three girls that were in it, like much closer. Um, but it was challenging in that respect. And I think that's a challenge that probably a lot of women face when they go into physics, especially, but, but the STEM um, in particular. Yes, that is um, a big problem that we have in the STEM in the STEM world so to speak is a lot of girls or young women don't see themselves in that field and then when they go to college there's no one like them their gender in that in the classroom and like you said well if you don't mind me asking what years did you go to college uh, I think I started college in like 2010 and I graduated probably in uh, like 2013 I think well, still, seven years ago, we're now in the new millennial, it's 2010, and you're still seeing this issue where you're one of three, and not only that, now you have these groups that don't want to be, don't want a female in their group, which is so sad, and I'm so sorry you had to go through that. Well, it was so funny, though, because at the beginning of the semester, it would start out that way, but then, you know, towards the end, all of a sudden they would start coming to us for questions because they would realize that we knew what we were doing. Right. You know, so the tables would turn and it was every class. It was kind of funny um, how that worked. But it was, again, it was a bonding experience for the females that were there. Mm-hmm. And I wouldn't discourage anyone to go into it. Physics is fascinating. And, and you know, it's it's the basis of all the other sciences. And as a physicist, I can say that. Yeah. You know? <laughs> Without physics, there's no chemistry. Without chemistry, there's no biology. So it all goes back to physics. (laughs) So, well, I mean, I will say, maybe if you can feel that way about physics being the basis of science, but math is the basic of everything. That's true. And and I want to go back to your point about, like, you know, math. And I think it's it's a real shame. In this country, it's like you, you would go to a dinner party and say, you know, I can't read, right? But you can go to a dinner party and say, well, I'm not good at math. And 
And I just think that there there has to be like a cultural change. And I think that um, the way that we teach math in this country or have taught math has not been very conducive to people feeling comfortable with it. Right. I actually do think, and this is probably a controversial statement, that the way the common core math and the way they do it now is actually going to help uh, this current generation of children really get a firm understanding of what math is. Um, and I think it's hard, this transitional phase, as you know, if you're a parent and learned math the way that you and I, I'm sure, learned math, mm-hmm. it's difficult to help your kids the way that they're learning math now. But it, eventually, within the next generation or two, I think we're going to see a lot uh, of an explosion of math literacy because of the way it's being taught. That's a good thing. I'm I'm not 100% sure on the new way. I've seen parts of it, like fractions. I've seen the little square they do now, and they draw in these lines in it, and uh, it looks like Chinese to me. I can't, I don't know what's happening. However, you know, if someone was to show it to me and explain it to me, I'm pretty sure I'd be able to catch on and be able to help. But, um, so do you, how do you know about the Common Core? Do you work with students? Or do you see the math now? Uh, when I was in college, the you know one of the ways that I paid for school was by tutoring. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we had a program here in Jacksonville um, where free tutoring was provided to low-income students okay. um, in certain schools. And so I volunteered and, and, well, I mean, I got paid for it, so I wasn't volunteering, but it was a job um, <laughs> right. that I had. And I was able to get exposure to it that way. And it, it is... It, you know, coming from a way where we were taught to memorize everything to mm-hmm. the way that they're learning it now. But I, I really believe in the changes that they've made. And, and kids today are going to have a much more intuitive understanding of math. Um, a lot of the kids that I taught that were older, you know, they had problems with math because, like, maybe they were absent when they taught division in second grade or something. Mm-hmm. And they never really got it. Right. Um, but the kids today learning Common Core shouldn't have those same gaps because they're not relying on memorization. They're relying upon competency. Okay. Yeah, I've seen, uh, like I said, I've seen parts of the new math, and this was in uh, junior high. I don't even know what they're doing in elementary or high school. But uh, to attest to what you're saying, one of the things when I talk to, especially young girls, about going in the STEM, and they're saying, I'm not good at this, I'm not good at that. I said, I wasn't good either. You know, math wasn't my forte. I was half asleep through physics, not going to lie. I halfway slept through the class in physics because I was just like, it was it was boring. And I didn't get it. But I took it. I took it and I passed because it was something I needed for my degree. So just because you're not good at it doesn't mean you shouldn't try it and you shouldn't attempt it and, you know, do what you have to do to get to the point that you want to be at. Yes, and it's really unfortunate because you don't get to see how beautiful math is until you're past Calc 1 and Calc 2 and Calc 3 and you don't get to see the awesome power that it has until you get to like differential equations and linear algebra. And unfortunately, you don't get to that point until you're like a junior in, in college. And so a lot of people lose, get lost along that way. But right. I had a math teacher who told me, you know, math is like a beautiful, beautiful, sunny beach. But in order to get to that beach, you have to walk through the swamp. You know? <laughs> and so just keep on going because sooner or later you're going to get to the beach. Right. And I'm sure that's that's absolutely true. You know, and that's just the the difficulty of, about it, you know, because not only is it the way that we learn, possibly, but it's the way that it's taught and it's the teacher who's teaching it. You know, one of the reasons I was more into science and going into like, animal science is because I had teachers who were like, this is amazing. Look at all this beautiful life and look at all this stuff, you know. So it takes a teacher who's excited. And I've definitely been in classrooms where the teacher is not excited 
they're like, this is what it is. Just do it, you know. And, you can, you know, they're not going to be excited about that. No, that's so important. It's so important to have um, teachers who are not only competent in the subject, but are enthusiastic about it. Right. You know, and I, I feel like teachers get a really uh, rough rap. Uh, they get it from every direction, you know, but it, it the sciences especially are difficult. And it's, it just, it kills me. I, I Sometimes I wonder why STEM is so unpopular because it's so interesting. If you have a mild curiosity or any curiosity about things and and as curious as children are, it's just a, a kind of a thing of keeping that curiosity going. And we as a society, I think, have to do a better job with that. And right. I think it's also on scientists as well. Right. Yeah, same. Trust me. I understand. One of the biggest <laughs> things about one of the biggest things about being out here, like I went to school in Alabama and I lived in Texas and I did a program in Vermont and no one, you know, I just say, hey, I'm cat. I'm in science. I'm a scientist. No one questioned it. I come to California, where I'm born and raised, which is supposed to be very liberal, and everybody is all open and stuff, and I tell them I'm a scientist. They're like, oh, I've never met a scientist. I've never met a black female scientist. It's like, what? How? How? This is like everyone talks to everyone. Y'all talk so much, so bad about the South, but no one questions me in the South, yet I get questioned here about it, so I don't understand. So I, I don't think know. it's hard for scientists too because we we tend not to be the most um, social <laughs> group, you know. Um, but I think it is important to get out there and talk about what you do and and what makes it fun. I mean, I love my job and it's super interesting. And everybody that I talk to when I'm on planes and stuff and they ask me what I do, they're so interested and they want to ask all these questions about it. And I wish that um, you know, environmental science as a field tends to have more of a parity between women uh, and men. Um, not as many people of color as, of course, I would like to see, but, um, and I would encourage more people, if you're interested in any kind of science, pursue it, you know, um, there's so many different things you can do with it, and that's another thing that we also, as a society, do a really bad job of, is letting people know the kind, or letting children know the kind of jobs that are out there. Um, I think most, when I was younger, I thought, you know, teacher, lawyer, doctor, Mm-hmm. Um, but there's so many more things out there that you can do w- with those degrees. Right. Like I always tell them, I mean, part of the reason I do this show is because STEM is an umbrella term. Even biology is an umbrella term. You know, right even with biology, you got micro, uh, animal, um, oceanography, ornithology. Like you have so many ologies that falls under biology that students don't know. But the it's not their fault because the teachers don't know and the parents don't know. And so it does take people like us to get out there and show them that there are these opportunities out there. So I and that's one of the things I really like about my job too, is when I thought of, you know, what my career as a scientist would be, I kind of even pictured it as being in a lab and I didn't want to do that. Uh, but there are a lot of jobs like mine that don't require being in a lab. Um, like we have a gentleman who works for us that does uh, wetlands delineation and he also does like bird watching because one of the things that we're looking for when we go out to these sites is to make sure that whatever development is going to happen is not going to impact any endangered species. So we'll send somebody out to look to see what kind of bird species are available uh, or in the area that might be endangered if they cut down this tree or if they build this building. Um, and, and that's all, you know, outside stuff. And, and you see such beautiful things yeah. being on the road in the job that I do. That's amazing. And I think um, some people don't realize that Yes, you might want to build your house here or, 
you know, especially out here, you know, people are trying to build more and more into the redwoods, into the mountainside, and then complain that they see wildlife in their backyard. Oh, there's a bear. Oh, there's a mountain lion. Well, what did you think? Like, you're in their habitat. But I don't think people consider it when they're building something or they see something being built or they want something being built. So if you can, um, try to explain what's happening when you take a natural habitat and you start to try and build into it. Well, first of all, um, just because a habitat looks pristine doesn't mean that it is. So something that I've run across frequently, and this is especially prevalent in the Northeast, but also in some parts of, of the West, is that um, you know, for years and years and years, these businesses had very poor practices. They just didn't know. You know, so for instance, in the late 1800s, early 1900s, it was common practice to just take your waste and, you know, put it in the local canal. Um, and then later on, their solution to that was to cover it all on concrete. Uh, but it still infected the water and, and things like that. So you, the house that you're building that looks like it might be on pristine land might not be. It could be contaminated in some way, which is one of the things we look for. Mm -hmm. If you're going to build out, um, it is a huge problem. One thing definitely is wildfire risk. The closer you get into these uh, habitats, the harder it is for the fire protection to protect your home. And the more you're gonna come into contact with wildlife. And, and you know, as humans, it seems like our typical reaction to wildlife is like to kill it, you know, instead mm -hmm. of respecting that, like you've gone into its house. Right. You know, every time you go into the woods, like you're going into its home. Right. And it, you know, it's more scared of you than you are of it. You know, there's some, some precautions that you can take. Um, I do think, though, that it is a, a myth that uh, that environmentalists or environmental scientists are always at loggerheads with business because we're not. <laughs> and my experience, you know, working in the private sector, I'm not a regulator or anything like that. But my experience with regulators has been that they're always trying to work with you um, to try to, to give everybody a win-win situation as much as they can. You know, I don't think anybody's anti-development so much as we're about smart development. Okay. I mean, that makes perfect sense to me. You know, um, <clears throat> all these old, old companies dealing with this and dumping their waste. Is there, what is like, or do you know the best way for these types of companies who might, let's say electronic waste, what do we do with electronic waste so that it's not impacting our environment? So every state has either a Department of Environmental Protection, or they might call it the Department of Environmental Quality. They might call it their Environmental Protection Agency. They all have different names, DEQ, DEP. But if you look up your state, that will tell you. And I mean, that, that department in each state, their whole purpose is to make sure that you're doing things in the most sustainable environmental way. And they have programs available, for instance, um, there was a site that I did in California where it was an auto dismantler. It's what we would probably call like a, a junkyard back in the day, but now they call them auto dismantlers. Oh yeah, make and, it sound better. <laughs> yeah, and so they had a, a relationship ongoing with the local county regulator. And especially in California, you guys have a lot of local uh, county level EPA type situations. And these regulators would come out and teach them basically how to get rid of their waste, how to label it properly, where you should put it. Uh, it's hard to say in a nationwide sense what you should do with your waste. I would contact your your state DEP or your local uh, waste management people and they can tell you. But there are all those resources available and typically, especially in the Northeast or the South, 
Uh, there's one general location point that you would take that stuff to um, and drop it off, and then they, they direct you which dumpster they want you to put it in, and so on and so forth. Okay. That sounds sounds good. I never knew. You know, we have a, um, just in San Francisco, I see a, quite a few electronic waste shops. So then you can bring your, you know, big electronics or even small electronics to them, and then they will handle it for you, which is cool because um, a lot of times outside of that, I see people just putting stuff on the streets and just like, you know, either somebody can take it or maybe the dump trucks will take it. But there should be a certain way that we're getting rid of our waste. Oh, and recycling it, too, because a lot of the um, rare earth metals get put into our cell phones, into our computers, Mm -hmm. and rather than continuing to mine them in kind of sketchy locations around the world, it would be better to recycle them, and that's why there are shops, because they can make money doing it just like you can make money with scrap metal. Okay, yeah. So I think that is an amazing uh, feat. I believe we have six minutes now uh, left in our 30-minute talk. Is I have one question and one comment. The question is, if someone was interested in going into being a field scientist, what would be your um, advice? And then the comment it would be, is there anything you would want to tell the audience about being in the field or being a field scientist or anything like that that you want to share? Well, if you are interested in, in going into environmental science, it's a, it's a very broad field. Typically, the kind of jobs uh, will require that you either have a, an undergraduate in environmental science or environmental engineering. <clears throat> and if you go into environmental engineering, that's more of like, so environmental science is more identifying what the problem is or making sure a problem doesn't happen. And then environmental engineering is more, okay, we've, we've located this problem. These are the steps that we need to take to remediate it. So depending on whether or not you want to like fix the problem or identify the problem is what field you go into. Another uh, field that nobody really talks about is geology. And a lot of environmental scientists have an undergraduate degree in geology because so much of it is, you know, what's going on in the ground. Um, I'm sorry, what was the, the last part? Oh, no, it's just whatever you wanted to share, anything that you, you know, thought was prevalent or you wanted to, people to know about you or what you do. Like, this is like your open mic time. Um. First thing is, if you have a dog, please keep it on a leash. Um, One of the the banes of my existence is going into rural areas or even urban areas um, where there's a large population of feral dogs. Uh, It's always very scary to have to go into a site. There's several times where I've been stuck in the car because somebody's dog and everybody always thinks their dog is friendly. Um, (laughs) And I I just want to say it's because it's your dog. Right. Um, It's friendly to you, not to everybody. (laughs) Yes. And then also, if you are going to purchase property or if you're going to develop property, a lot of the laws that govern uh, commercial property don't govern residential property. So, for instance, homeowners aren't required to do the same level of environmental due diligence as commercial companies are. So if you're going to purchase a property or you're going to purchase land, do some research and determine uh, what's going on there. Is there lead paint? Is there asbestos? Which is another thing that we didn't really talk about. A part of my job is inspecting current buildings to make sure that there's nothing harmful there that would harm other people or animals. Um, And that's something to look into. Uh, And especially in the Western United States, water is a big thing. You know, make sure that wherever you're wanting to build or wherever you're going to move has access to continuous water. Uh, The aquifer has gone down hundreds of feet Mm -hmm. in places like Arizona, New Mexico. And that's something that that we see um, and that people who live there might not necessarily be aware of. Oh, wow. That is, yeah. 
That is sad. And I, I have so much to say on that and even like climate change and all that stuff. But, you know, not everybody wants to hear it. So I will <laughs> keep it to myself. But um, I want to say thank you so much for taking the time out to be on our show today. I know it's a little later down there in Florida. So thanks for making sure you had the time. And I appreciate everything. Also, to my audience, if you want to get in touch with Kate, always, always hit me up and I will share it with Kate so that she can get in touch with you. If you have any questions, of course, about being a field scientist, I'm sure she would answer it. And thank you for being a part of our show today. And next week, we will talk to someone else. I don't know who yet. But <laughs> thank you. Thank you, Kate. Thank you, Kat.